0: Good morning, church family. Good to have you here in the Lord's house. Uh, thank you to the ladies' ensemble for an amazing uh, rendition of We Shall Rise and We Shall Rise. How many of you are ready to go home and be with the Lord? If you're a little slow at raising your hand, maybe the, today's message will help you, okay? All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, and I want to just make a couple of quick announcements before uh, we get into the Word of God here. First of all, I'm going to be doing a new members class here in October. I'll give the specific date once we finalize it, but we will be communicating it from the pulpit here and in our regular church emails every Tuesday and Thursday. And if you are visiting with us or You've become a member and haven't attended this class. You want to be a part of that. Uh, it's a way for us to talk about our mission, our vision, our values as a church family, how God has called us in West Ashley, what we're called to do, and ultimately, uh, the ministries that we have here and the mission that we uh, seek after, which is God's mission, and how you can be a part of it. Oh, so that's a new members class. Just be looking out for that. The second is, is that on October 15th, we're going to have a congregational meeting and we'll be walking through our budget for 2024. In addition to that, we are going to follow the Lord's leading at beautifying the Lord's house here at Ashley River and we call it Faith Forward. Faith Forward Restoration Campaign. We want to restore our facilities here at Ashley River to glorify our God. And so we've got a very ambitious uh, opportunity for us to join God in what He is doing and to beautify His house uh, I'm reminded of the passage in Haggai, where Haggai called out to the people and he said, ultimately, the Lord has been, and his house has been neglected, and we don't want it to be neglected. So, with that, I'm kind of going in and out here, so if you'll just put me on the pulpit mic, I'll be good. Okay? All right, so with that, uh, turn in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 4. In your pew Bible, it's 1,194. Stand with me. I'm just going to read the first two verses of that chapter, and then we're going to work our way through. This is the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Father, this is your word. And Lord, as we look at these two chapters today, I pray that you will help our hearts and our minds to understand the glory of your throne room in heaven. But more importantly, the the glory of of you, our heavenly father, seated on the Rome, on the throne, high and lifted up, and of the lamb who is in the center of the throne, who himself laid down his life for all humanity, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, and receive that same invitation that John received in 95 A.D. when he, when the Lord himself said, come up here, and I will tell you what must take place after this. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen, amen. You know, as we think about this particular part of Revelation, as you remember, uh, three weeks ago, we were in Revelation chapter 1 and we looked at the majestic vision of Jesus Christ that John saw. And then, of course, we also saw in that first week the natural outline of Revelation the natural outline of Revelation. And that is that is that there is a... Jesus tells John, write down the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place after this. And so there's a three parts of Revelation. The second week, we looked at the seven churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So the first chapter of Revelation is the things which you have seen, The second and third chapter are the things which are, and then we see here in chapter four that, in fact, Jesus tells John, now I will show you what must take place after this. And so we understand that chapter four begins, it begins the third and final section of Revelation. Now, last week, I took us to Daniel chapter 9, and the reason I took us there is because we needed to understand God's timetable for Israel, and we found out what that timetable was. And in fact, the timetable is this. Daniel's prophecy of chapter 9 says that the Israelite people, there are 490 years determined for Israel. And we know that from the going of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, 483 of those 490 years had already transpired. And then we enter into what's known as the church age. And that's what we're in now. We're in what's referred to as the church age age. This is when Jesus himself opens up the gospel to not just Jew, but Gentile as well. The entire New Testament, Paul is articulating the fact that God has opened up the beautiful salvation of Jesus Christ to all people. And so we see that there. And of course, this seven final years that still remains is yet future. And so from 483 to 490 is what's known as the tribulation. And the tribulation is that period of time known as Jacob's trouble. The reason it's called Jacob's trouble in the Bible is because Jacob, of course, is the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so it makes sense that this is the time of Jacob's trouble, the final seven years of the 490 years determined for Israel. And so today, I want us to just look at this timeline. Remember, Christ, of course, was crucified and raised again at his first coming, and now we're in the church age. The next event to happen is what we call an imminent event, an event that is going to happen without any notice. It's referred to as the rapture. Now, some don't believe that a rapture is going to happen, or they believe it's going to happen at the same time as the second coming of Christ. Most scholars today would argue, no, in fact, that Jesus is going to come and gather his church together. Those who have already died and those who are remaining and still alive will be gathered with them in the air to meet meet Jesus in the air in the clouds. We're going to look at a few of the New Testament passages that actually speak to that. And then, of course, we, after the rapture, notice there's a little bit of a gap there between the rapture and the tribulation period. I intentionally made it that way because we don't necessarily know scripturally that the rapture, once it occurs, immediately ushers in the tribulation. We don't know that. Biblically, you can't point to a passage of scripture that says that as soon as the rapture happens, the tribulation begins. And so there's a gap there. We have no idea how long. It could be a year, could be two years, could be five years, ten years. We don't know. All we know is that if you are in Christ, you will be raptured. And then, of course, there is a seven-year tribulation. This is Daniel's 70th week. And many times in Scripture, it's referred to as the first three and a half years plus the second three and a half years. And then, of course, during this 70th week of Daniel, there are three series of judgments that begin in chapter 6 and run all the way to chapter 18. They are the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And then Christ will come again. For those who wonder if Christ is going to come again, there is no doubt there are over 300 references in the New Testament to Jesus Christ coming again. And then, of course, we have the thousand-year tribulation period or millennial period for a thousand years. Millennium literally means a thousand years. Somebody was asking me earlier, do you interpret Revelation literally? I say yes. And so therefore, a thousand years means what? A thousand years. That's how I take it. God wanted me to have it any other way, he would have explained it, okay, further. There's a thousand-year millennial period after which there is the great white throne judgment. People in this world need to know that God is going to judge them. Everyone will appear before the throne of God, either at the Bema seat judgment, referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, which is for believers, It's the Christ judgment or at the final judgment before the throne of God. And then finally, we enter into eternity. And of course, we all want to get to Revelation 21 and 22, when we are ushered into eternal life with God forever. And that's a long time, just so you know. And so we come to now this particular topic of the rapture. I just read these two verses and he says, after this, I looked. Now, let me make sure everybody's clear. John uses this phrase over and over and over and over again in Revelation. It's one of the reasons why I am convinced that the book of Revelation is a sequential chronological book. It's easily understood because John is being given the visions by God in order, and he says, after the seven letters to the seven churches, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, okay? And so a lot of people believe that John here, who is told by Jesus, come here, and I will show you what must take place after this, is really, he has a type or a pattern of the church, of the revel, of the rapture of the church. And there are four views of the rapture. The first one is this. It's called a pre-tribulational rapture. I personally hold to this view and find that John is a representation of the church, all believers of all time. The second one is mid-tribulation uh, rapture. They, they find that the rapture happens in chapter 14. I agree, but I believe that that is the people that come to Christ during the tribulation. They are raptured at that point. And then, of course, we see there's a third view that really came on the scene about 40 or 50 years ago, and it's called a pre-wrath rapture. The pre-wrath rapture literally says that before the final wrath of God, However, they can't specify where in Revelation it occurs. I would put it in Revelation chapter 15 because chapter 16 is the seven bowls, and many refer to that as the great wrath of God. And then lastly, there's post-tribulational rapture. Now, if you hold to this view, um, that's fine, except that God, Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come in the clouds. He's going to gather you up, and then immediately you're going to turn right back around and come back down for the second coming, and you'll miss the marriage supper of the Lamb, which I'm not sure you want to miss. Um, but that's a post-tribulational rapture. So I hold to the pre-trib, uh, pre-trib um, uh, pre-millennial view. Okay. So with that, the rapture is really the. There's three passages in the New Testament that I want to turn our attention to. There's several more, but the first one is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Look at what it says there on the screen. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven, okay, so he'll come from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are alive, and and we will be caught up together with them in the clouds. The word caught up there literally means to snatch away. In the Greek, it is harpazo, harpazo. The word we get for rapture is Latin for raptus, and that is why we refer to it as the rapture. And then it says, and we will be with the Lord forever. So this is, of course, out of First Thess- Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, it's important to note the context. Remember me. I'm always about the context. Why would Paul address the rapture to the church at Thessalonica? Very simply, the people at Thessalonica had believed that, in fact, those who died in the Lord would miss out on the return of Christ. That was their biggest concern. When Paul learns this, Paul writes back to them and says, I don't want you to be ignorant about these things, brothers, because the dead in Christ, those who have fallen asleep, okay which is a euphemism for death, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain, we will be gathered up or caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. That was the context of 1st Thessalonians. The second one is in John chapter 14. And if you've ever been to a funeral, you know these words from Jesus himself in the upper room with his disciples. What did he say? In my Father's house are many rooms. I love the King James version. It says, in my Father's house are many mansions. Okay, I don't know if I'm going to get a mansion or a hut, but. Basically, I want to be with the Lord. That's what I want to be, okay? I want to be with Jesus. And he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says this, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? Come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. These are the words of Jesus, the promise to his disciples, that he is going to come back and catch them up, snatch them to himself so that they may be with him. The third one here is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and many of us are familiar with this passage. Oh, if you just read this particular passage about the resurrection, Paul actually even contemplates the fact that there may not be a resurrection. He says, What if there's not a resurrection? Then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins and we are to be most pitied among all people. But then he says, but praise God, Jesus is raised. Hallelujah, what a savior. Turn to your neighbor and say, hallelujah. Turn to your other neighbor and say, what a savior. I love that. I, I believe that that is what this is all about because he then goes on to say, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. How many of you have some... Uh, cricks when you get up some bones that crackle when you stand up how many of you struggle to get from point a to point b how many of you wish you had hair which ones of you think that maybe if i had blue eyes i would have attracted a better mate i don't know about you but the bottom line is is that it says we will not all sleep but we will all be changed our bodies are uh, of this earth But we will receive glorious heavenly bodies. He says, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. Remember, sounds familiar, doesn't it? To the two previous passages we just read. When the trumpet sounds, the dead will be raised imperishable. Because imperishable needs to be clothed with imperishability and, and what? We will be clothed with the imperishable and we will what? The mortality will become immortal. Amen and hallelujah. And so we see here these passages. Now, the rapture coming before the tribulation, there are seven reasons I want to give us this morning to emphasize this. Number one, the church is mentioned 19 times in chapters 1 through 3. It's not mentioned again until chapter 22. The church is out of the way, folks. Number two... John is a type of the church. He is, seeing, he is seeing a door in heaven and he is hearing a voice saying, come up here, come to me. And he is caught up to heaven. Number three, God promised to spare believers from the day of wrath. We see this in the Thessalonian letters as well as well as Revelation 3.10. And then Daniel, 70 weeks. Remember, last week we talked about it. 490 years are determined for who? For the church? No, for Israel. For Israel. And so therefore, this is really God's final dealings with the Israelite people that he chose to be his own. Uh, Number five, chapters 6 through 18, is God's judgment upon the earth, including all non-believing Jews. Jewish people have rejected the Messiah. And because of that, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the title of this book, is really revealing Jesus for who he really is. That he is the Messiah. Do you understand? That this book is really written for the unbelieving community, and we get to, to see it and then use it as a means of our evangelism to that unbelieving community. And look at this one. In Thessalonians, we learn, 2 Thessalonians, we learn that something is restraining the outright evil. You think the world is evil now? Wait until the seven year tribulation when the church in which the Holy Spirit resides, is taken out of the way. Can you imagine anything that is restraining evil becoming rampant around this world? It's the Holy Spirit living in and through believers. When the believers are taken out of the way, this world will become very, very dark. And of course, we see that. And then finally, we see this. Number seven, that the church... Um, returns with Christ. We're taught in chapter 19 that the church will return with Christ. Well, if Christ is in heaven when he starts his return and the church is coming with him, then the church must be in heaven. And understand, we are at the beginning of chapter 19 of Revelation, you read about the wedding supper of the Lamb. We are all going to be gathered around the supper table of the Lamb. Praise God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now, I don't know how many years it would take God to build the table. I, you know, how many of you feel like maybe you're going to be at the children's table, like you do at Thanksgiving? Okay, well, it doesn't matter because if you're a child of God, it's going to be okay all right? And so that's why I believe that the rapture happens before the tribulation period. Now, let me place this uh, down in front of you because some of you may say, well, I I believe differently. That is perfectly fine. You can believe differently. We can have a disagreement and still love one another as brother and sister. And oh, by the way, if you're a pre-tribulational rapturist, here's my encouragement. Be okay if you have to go through the tribulation. You need to be okay with that. Because if you're okay with going through the tribulation, then you know whom you have believed. And he is able to guard you against that day. Amen? Amen. So I'm okay with going through the tribulation. I just don't want to. Okay? you all good with that. All right. Finally, let's go to the throne room of heaven. Let me pick up here. Um, and the end of chapter, or verse two, we saw the throne room of heaven, and it's the throne of God. Look at what it says there in verse two. At once, I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, with someone sitting on it. Listen to the description. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald and circled the throne. This morning, I want us to realize that we sang the words, holy, 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 because they occur in these passages that we're going to read today. But we also sang, holy, 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 because it is the first attribute of God that comes and confronts us when we see the Father seated on his throne. I don't think it's hyperbolic for me to say that the modern-day church in America has lost its awe and wonder and majesty and power and, yes, fear of the Lord. May our hearts, and I'm speaking to me as well, may our hearts be inclined to kneel before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, you can do it physically. You can quote scripture. Satan quoted scripture. You can say, I attend church. You can say, I attend a Sunday school. You could say, I do good things. But I believe that you and I, when we come into the very presence of Almighty God, we will feel like the prophet Isaiah. When he said, woe to me, for I am undone. I am undone. I am naked before the Lord. All of my righteous acts are as filthy rags before him. When we come before the Lord... I believe that John is just trying to describe with whatever words he had at his disposal. But I am convinced as I read this word that John could not come up with any Greek word that adequately described the awesome power and glory and majesty of the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. I'm convinced of it. And so he's just describing it that's why he continues to say it's like a rainbow that would resembled an emerald it's like carnelian it's like jasper it's like the most bright and glorious stones that I can possibly think of this is our heavenly father seated on the throne and then it says there in verse 4 surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders they were dressed in white and had crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. You know, these 24 elders, I've heard and I've read a lot about who these 24 elders are. How many of you ever figured, wanted to figure out who these 24 elders are? You know, And uh, a lot of scholars just come to the conclusion that they represent all believers of all time that they are seated on thrones because they've been given the power by Jesus Christ to judge, and that therefore they are the church of all the ages. But again, I'm a literalist. There's 24 thrones. I don't know how all of the people of all the ages can fit on 24 thrones. And in fact, one of them speaks to John audibly, and it's one of the 24 elders. And so we have to get to the place where we say, who are these 24 elders if they are not, in fact... A representation of the whole body of believers of all time. I would argue that we divide that 24 into two parts, and of course, there's 12 and 12. And we know that number is a very important number in Scripture. We know in the Old Testament that there are 12 tribes. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and we also know in the New Testament there are 12 apostles. And we, if we think about that, then we would say that there, these 12, these 24 thrones, perhaps have the 24. Uh, the twelve from the Old Testament, twelve from the new, now we know that matthias probably didn 't make it, certainly judas didn 't make it, so the twelfth apostle would be Paul. Paul calls himself an apostle, but we can 't be dogmatic because it doesn't say that. All I can tell you this morning is that it may represent it may represent the twelve tribes of the Old Testament and the twelve apostles of the New Testament. Further evidence of this is found in revelation twenty one when we see the twelve gates around. The New Jerusalem and those 12 gates uh, have the names of the 12 tribes over them. And the foundations, there's 12 foundations, and those foundations are, in, in fact, represented by the apostles themselves. And so the entire body of God, the, all the children of God, are characterized by the tribes and the apostles. And then, of course, we see in verses 5 and 6, the lightning and the thunder. David uh, beautifully read from Ezekiel 1. How many of you believe that Ezekiel could come up with that on his own? Do you think so? No way. Because of what you read in Ezekiel, it's got to be inspired by a holy God who knows the end from the beginning. And so when David read it, it was lightnings and and peals of thunder and all of this power of God. And then, of course, in here it says that there's a sea of glass. Look at what it says there in verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. In my Bible, there's a textual note that says, or the sevenfold spirit of God. And then it says, also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. You understand that this sevenfold spirit is, of course, the Holy Spirit. And the sea of glass represents the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. And so then we go on into the next section here. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth like a flying eagle. Does this sound anything like what David read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 1? It's amazing that all four of those faces are exactly represented here in Revelation chapter 4. And so as we look at it, we understand that, in fact, these four represent four parts of God's living creation. The first one is, of course, the lion. And the lion represents all wild animals upon the earth. And the ox is a, is a domesticated animal. It's a tamed animal. It's a, an animal used by humans. And so oxen represents the domestic animal Kingdom, And then, of course, the man represents humanity, us humans. And then finally, there is the eagle, which represents birds of the air, and we could even say fish of the sea as well. But it's interesting because as you think about this, at the very end in chapter and verse 11, what does it say? You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for what? For you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. You see, so the entire moment that they are gathered there together, these four living creatures represent all of God's creation. And they represent the variability of God's creative power among all living things. And the 24 elders are the ones who throw themselves down before the throne and say, your creative power is unbelievable, God. And they worship him. And they say, holy. Look at what it says there in the middle in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. when you and I come to the conclusion that we serve a holy creator, that he knit you together in your mother's womb, that he loves you without condition, he loves you more than you and I could possibly fathom, he wants you to come to Him in your high moments of life and when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. He wants a relationship with you. My question for us this morning. Does Jesus know you? When you're in his word, you're with Jesus. When you're in prayer, you're with Jesus. When you're worshiping, you're with Jesus when you're showing mercy or grace or love to a fellow human being, you're with Jesus. When you're giving of your time and your talent and the treasures that he gave you the ability to collect on this earth, you're worshiping and you're serving and you're, you're standing and walking and, and being with Jesus. I'm convinced that none of us will be standing when we see the Lord Jesus. We will fall on our face. We will cast our crowns at the feet of the Lamb of Almighty God. It is that Lamb who laid down his life for your sin and for mine. For the sin of the world, he himself went to the cross and, listen, he gave his life of his own will. He gave it freely. He said, nobody takes my life. I have power to take it. I have the power to take it. I leave it. I have the power to take it up again, he said. Jesus hung on that cross. And as those people hurled insults at him, What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. We have a message to tell, and the message is this. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He shed his blood. He gave his body for all who would trust in him. He gave it for all, but only those who trust in him will be able to come into the throne room of heaven. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this moment in this church service. After reading these words of your scripture, we recognize that we have the ability to come to you no matter what. You are always available. Thank you that you are ever on your throne. We praise you. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper today. And I know we're running a little long, but I hope you'll stay with us. You know, Paul wrote to the Corinthians about a lot of things, but he wanted them to understand about the Lord's Supper. And he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Don't miss that. How many times have you participated in the Lord's Supper? When Jesus says, my body is for you. My body is for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25 says, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you understand the covenant of God? Oh, I don't have time this morning to go through the covenantal call of God. But when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is by his blood. It is by the covenantal blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, for whenever you eat of this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then, of course, he says in verse 27 and 28 that whoever eats the bread of, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So then he says a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. We ought to examine our hearts this morning. Maybe some of us have a lot to say to the Lord Jesus Christ right now. I know all of us have something to say to him. Here's a time for you to confess your sin. Confession is important because it's acknowledging what God already knows. It's a humility. It's a part of you saying, Lord, I am not perfect, but in you, I could be made perfect because Jesus is perfect. Be holy, even as I am holy. The only way to holiness is when you lay down your sin before a holy God.